0: Good morning! What a beautiful morning! What a beautiful opportunity to worship God and His creation this morning. Really thankful to be here to present the Word of our Living God, the Word of Life, Word of Truth, our Rock and our Foundation that we can build our lives upon. Before we uh, we go to our text this morning, let's pray. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone. Let the heavenly food of the scripture that we're about to hear nourish us, sustain us today in the ways of eternal life through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven, our heavenly high priest. Lord, we ask that you awaken us to these eternal truths, so that our adoration of Jesus is elevated. Allow this message by your spirits working to bring us into joyful obedience. I pray that it equips us to follow you more fully in a world that is passing away. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. You can turn to Hebrews chapter eight, in your Bibles this morning, we hit somewhat of a a shift in our study through the book of Hebrews. We have learned a lot about Christ, we call it Christology in theology, the study of our Savior, the study of who he is, who he was, and who we will always be, and all of this directly relates back to his people because he is these things and has always been these things for our good and for our glory. This morning, I want to, to turn, help turn your eyes to this magnificent Savior we have in Jesus Christ. And there may be no book that does this more than the book of Hebrews. It's a magnificent letter that, we're, that we've been studying. It's, its aim is to clarify who Jesus really is. Is Jesus the true Messiah, as prophesied in the Old Testament? The main audience for our author is a group of Jewish Christians. We could say that they're Hellenistic, they're Greek-speaking, they're raised in a Greek-speaking world, but they were born into Jewish families. They understand Jewish culture and tradition, and they understand the system of the temple and how we are to or how we were to approach God through his structure and through his system that he set up for our good. They've come to hear the gospel. Like, like many of us here, hopefully all of us, we, we hear the sweetness of the truth of God as revealed in, in the cross and for our good, and they trust in Christ. And soon after that, they are faced with trial and temptation, and in the midst of this trial, they start to feel persecution and pushback from their communities. Maybe some of you have trusted Christ out of a, a different religion that you grew up in. Or maybe your family is staunch atheists and when they look at you and they talk to you, you can always feel a sense of un, uh, uh, discomfort in your relationships. Maybe you long for these precious relationships in your life with your family members or closest friends to just be better or maybe back to to normal before Christ. Maybe you feel that a little bit in your heart. Well, certainly this is what they were feeling, the the audience of this letter. Not only that, but they were feeling even more persecution from the state. They were people that worshipped Christ as their high priest, and their king, and their God. And if you were unwilling to do these things for Caesar, there were serious consequences. So they begin to think... Is Jesus really greater? Is he really greater than what we had before? I mean, we were still following God. Is, is, is this really what God has for his people? They begin to wonder, should we go back to the temple? So we've learned so far in this letter, if there's anything that we can hold on to, it's this. Jesus is Greater. Jesus is greater. The text of Hebrews is like a life buoy thrown out to a a flailing, drowning swimmer with with the line, Jesus is greater. Grab a hold. The trials will not pass. The temptation may not pass. The persecution may not pass. But we have a Savior who's a steady rock for you. So, um, excuse me for a second. So, so this morning, what I hope to see in our text and, and hope to bring a, bring across well is this point, right? Is this point in the text that Jesus Christ is our high priest who is ministering in heaven on our behalf. Jesus is our high priest in heaven who is ministering on our, beh- on our behalf. What does this mean, though? This means this morning that Jesus alone sustains us in the presence of God. Hear this. Jesus alone sustains us in the presence of God. So let's begin by reading Hebrews chapter 8. If you could stand one more time, please. We'll read chapter 8, 1 through 5. Now, this is the point. Uh, now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy place, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect a tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. This is the word of the Lord. You be seated again. So... As I said before, Hebrews 8 is a hinge in the book. We've, uh, we've established the legitimacy of Christ's role as a high priest for his people. Now we're going to move forward in the book and see, well, what does that mean for us today? So let's look again at verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. Church, as a preacher, the goal of studying, reading, meditating, praying over a text is to discover the points. And this morning, by God's grace, his providence, he has provided that for us. This doesn't happen often, so let's thank God for it. Um, So as I mentioned, um, Hebrews 8 is the hinge of the book because it summarizes all that is trying to be said up to this point. We've already covered the original audience of the book. Why were they considering turning back from Christ? Why would they consider turning back to old ways? So the author lifts up Jesus in juxtaposition of all that they're wanting to turn to, all that they are, all that they have formerly trusted in. We're giving deep biblical reason to think that Jesus is more excellent. And we're given reasons why you should stay faithful to Christ. In the midst of hardship, let's quickly run through some of the things that we've covered in the first few chapters of the book. Chapters one through two, we've learned that we've learned about the angels and the law, the Torah. Angels were were thought to be in their tradition the original messengers of the law, the Torah. But then we learn that Jesus precedes the angels in the law, and He is a greater law, a greater messenger for God's people. Chapters three through four, we learn uh, we are reminded of this the status of Moses and the the purpose of the promised land that God has for his people. Moses was a leader of God's people, and he built the tabernacle. Jesus is more superior because he is a leader of all of God's people, and he built everything. He is truly the creator of all things. Chapters 5 through 7, we were confronted with the priesthood, and this person in the Old Testament, Melchizedek, Priests came from the line, of Aaron, uh, the line of Aaron in the tribe of Levi. These were men priests, meaning, as men priests, they were weak and flawed priests. They needed to continually make sacrifices for their own sins before they could make atonement for the people of Israel. Even more, these men priests eventually died, and they needed to be replaced by the next generation. Jesus, however, is a superior priest. He's not from the line of Aaron, not from the tribe of Levi, but out of the order of Melchizedek. He is the priest king. He is an image of the priest king in Genesis chapter 14. He's also prophesied of in Psalm 110. Unlike any Levitical priest, Jesus is morally perfect, forever living, and he's an approachable priest king for all his people forever. And in chapter 8, we're going to start thinking about what the temple and tabernacle mean. Should we turn back? If, if we don't turn back to Moses, if we don't turn back to the message of the angels, if we don't turn back to the promised land or the Levit- Levitical priesthood, maybe what we should do is turn back to the temple. Surely that, that beautiful structure, that symbol of our of our nation, that's something we could put our hope in, right? Well, there is, there's the quick background, and, and here's the point of what, what he's getting at, the author of this message is getting at. So this is the point. Verse, we'll continue in verse 1. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. We, notice that word we, right? Let's start off with that. We. We. All believers in Christ Jesus. yes, yeah, surely this is talking to the original audience, but Calvary, Redeeming Grace, we, we have right now a great high priest who is somewhere doing something right now. Such a high priest. We may not think of Jesus in terms of priesthood, but it would serve us well to do that. Jesus is a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And this is significant because this makes his priesthood legitimate before God. We think of his sacrifice on the cross. And we know that to be a sacrifice on our behalf for God. But for that to be a legitimate, acceptable sacrifice to God, Jesus has to truly be a high priest on our behalf. And we learned and we have learned and we will continue to learn that his priesthood is legitimate. You can trust in his priesthood as as prophesied of in the Old Testament. A way to think well about what a priest is or what the priesthood does is through the word representation. The priest represented the nation of Israel to God and represented God to the nation. This was done in a specific location, either in the temple or the tabernacle. Meaning you would have to go to this specific geographical spot to worship in the presence of God through a priest who represented you. As Christians, we don't think that way, or we shouldn't think that way. We don't think, I have to go to that person over there to truly be in the presence of God. As we see, that idea, that curtain where God is separated has been removed. Our high priest, Jesus, as we have learned, is no mere average run-of-the-mill high priest. He is superior for a number of reasons. As we mentioned before, and we will continue to see, in fact, he's superior in every way. Let's consider two ways from the text that makes Jesus' ministry superior. First, through his location, and second, through his work, which we'll call his ministry. First, Jesus is in a better location. Jesus is in a better location. Let's continue reading read it from uh, verse 1. Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. Our Savior, after his resurrection, walked among men, revealing uh, that his resurrection was real. He showed it to his followers. He showed it to the world. Then, before his disciples' eyes, he ascended into heaven. Then what happened? Have you ever wondered that? He, he ascended? Where did he go? What's he doing? Well, we have it in the text right here. It says Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. And before we're giving more, and we are given more information than just heaven, The text describes this as a throne room sanctuary in the presence of God. Where is our Savior? He is in a throne room sanctuary before the presence of God. We should be reminded of Melchizedek once again here as we're reading this. He was the king of Salem, the king of peace, but also a priest of the Most High God, a priest king. We have a heavenly priest king before the throne. Jesus, as we know, was of the line of David and was to be an everlasting king of his people. So the throne room is to be expected. But he's not addressed as a king in this text, right? In this text, he's addressed as high priest. So our first insight into Christ's location is he's a high heavenly priest king in the throne room. Let's keep reading verse two. He is a minister in the holy places, in a true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Minister in the holy places. That word "hagion" means sanctuary or holiest of all places. The author is bringing to his audience mind, surely it's something that these Hellenistic Jewish Christians would immediately understand. He's speaking of the holy of holies the most important room in the tabernacle and in the temple. In the true tent, he continues on. He's in the Holy of Holies In the true tent. That word tent is a fine rendering of that word, but it could also be translated as tabernacle, as the uh, New American Standard Bible translates it. Tabernacle or a, a tent of meeting. It's clear to the audience what the author is going for here. He's defining Jesus' high priestly service in terms of worship where the priests do their work, not just in the tabernacle or temple, but in the holy of holies where the presence of God dwelt. It helps us to understand the tabernacle structure if you're not familiar with it. I'd love to share that with you just for a second, but it it was constructed by Moses in the pattern of something greater. So imagine with me for a second, you're in the wilderness, which may not actually look too different from what we're seeing to my right. And you would see a rectangular structure. Uh, It'd be beautiful. It it would have cloth walls. You would know that it was not permanent, that it'd be something that you could take down and easily transport. And that's what the tabernacle's purpose was, to be transported with the people as they moved. If you were to enter into the east side, there was one entrance you would enter into, then you'd, open, you'd come into the outer court. And what you would see when you went through the wall in the outer court, which was not covered, you would see right in front of you a bronze altar. It'd be pretty big, it'd be burning, there'd be a fire burning, it, that's where you would put your sacrifices on, the animal sacrifices to be burned up. Behind it, you would see a, a bronze basin filled with water, and, and the, what, this was used by the priests for ceremonial washings and cleansings as part of, as, as part of the, uh, the, the ritual ceremony of, of sacrificing. But then behind that, you would see another structure that's built inside of this outer court. It's covered. It looks more like a, more like a, a, a traditional tent, right? If you were to, to go in th- through the gate of that tent, they, they call that door the gate, you would be now in the holy place, To your left, you would see a golden lampstand that was providing light in the room. To your right, you would see a table called the table of showbread. There'd be 12 loaves of bread on top that the the priests were allowed to eat those loaves of bread on the Sabbath. Tradition says that there was even uh, um, a pitcher of wine on that table. And in the middle, there'd be the altar of incense. Constantly burning, constantly offering up this incense before God. And behind that, okay, so we're getting deeper in. And the idea of the tabernacle is you're actually on this pathway towards heaven, right? You're traveling towards heaven because in that center, in the, in the last room, is the presence of God. Now, you would see a veil behind the altar of incense. And there would be two cherubim embroidered on this beautiful veil. And if you were to open it and step in, you'd be in a much smaller room with just a box. That's it. Now, it's an impressive box. <laughs> it's gold. Uh, it's called the Ark of the Covenant. I'm no, I know you're familiar with that word, right? Uh, the Ark of the Covenant is a gold box that, that held the tablets of uh, the Ten Commandment tablets and a few other things. On top of it, the lid for that box is called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat had two cherubim facing towards the middle, bowing down. And this is where the presence of God was supposed to be centrally located for his people. This area was extremely important, and you dare not enter into this room unless God calls you into it, unless God gives you permission. In fact, only one day of the year was one person allowed to enter into that room, and that's called the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest, one priest of many priests who was chosen, would go in there and make a sacrifice for all of Israel. There, the shed blood would be put on the mercy seat in the presence of God, bringing atonement for all his people as a representative of his people, bringing them back into union and communion with their God. Now, we see the importance of Christ ministering in the holy place. He serves as a high priest on our behalf in a throne room sanctuary before the presence of God for us forever. Not a few hours once a year, one day out of the year, but every day, nonstop, that is where our high priest is. In real estate, they say that there's three things to consider for the value of a property. Do you know? Location, location, location. New Testament scholar Michael Kruger says that if there's one thing you want to look at for it, to evaluate your redeemer, it's location, location, location. Notice the first action, though, as we switch now to consider that Jesus' ministry is better. Let's look at his first action that we learn about this high priest. Go back to verse 1. It says that he is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. The idea of a seated priest in the sanctuary would be foreign to any Israelite, okay? The scene of a tabernacle, or the permanent structure of the temple, which would later be built, but uh, operates functionally the same way as a tabernacle, would be this, this, this scene of busyness. There'd be crowds and sacrifices. You'd hear people talking and praising God and animals making their noises. This would not be a place you'd go and say... This is where I'd want to drink some tea and relax and just take a seat and take it all in. No, this was a busy, exciting place where people were worshiping God through the act of sacrifices. Priests would not be caught sitting down on the job. Yet, here our high priest is seated at the right hand. Right hand uh, signifying authority and power, and seated representing completeness of his one. And only final sacrifice he need not stand he need not walk around his job to offer a sacrifice has been finished his work is done last week we read in Hebrews chapter seven verse twenty seven you can look there if you still have Hebrews open it says he Christ has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the people's, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. Once for all, a one and done sacrifice was necessary because it was a perfect sacrifice. No need to turn back to the law and the weakness of previous high priests when our perfect priest's sacrificial work is finished. Verse 2, chapter 8. What else do we learn about Jesus' ministry? Well, he's ministering in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Jesus is seated, yet he's ministering in the heavenly sanctuary. What is this ministry, though? He's ministering for us in the sanctuary. Well, we again read this last week in chapter 7 when Ryan preached to us. In verse 25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And since Pastor Ryan preached that so well, we don't need to explain that again, though I do love the idea of the totality of Jesus saving to the uttermost, the idea of completely and fully Also, Christ's ministry includes presently interceding for us, praying for every one of your needs, every one of my needs, and then providing for our greatest needs. Our representative high priest remains forever in the presence of God, saving and ministering for us. And here we see the sermon point really start to grow legs and take shape. Jesus alone sustains us in the presence of God. Jesus alone sustains us in the presence of God. Sustaining means to support, to hold up, or to keep. His idea of grasping, nourishing, and keeping, he sustains us, and nothing will separate us from that sustaining love he has for us. What more does Jesus' location and ministry tell us? We could keep going with this. Let me give just quickly two more points. Jesus' location and ministry confirm. That his role as heavenly priest-king is acceptable to God. This is important. Old Testament priests needed to continually, ritually cleanse themselves throughout the sacrificial process on the Day of Atonement. Multiple times throughout that process, they would have to wash their bodies and change their clothes and offer sacrifices for themselves. And then, and only then, were they allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. Yet we have a high priest who has entered into this place because he is accepted fully. And his sacrifice for us was accepted fully. Praise him. Unlike the Levitical priesthood on the day of atonement, Jesus doesn't go in, make the sacrifice and leave. He goes in and remains. He remained to continue to minister to us and for us in heaven. Where is your Savior? Where is he, church? He is in the throne room, in the presence of God, ministering to you right now. What is it to have Christ as such a high priest? It means to have access to God the Father through the mediator and intercessor, Jesus Christ. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Now, verses three and four continue to press deeper into Jesus' ministry being better and his location being better. Let's read verse three. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus, it is necessary for this priest, Jesus Christ, also to have something offer. Again, this solidifies the role that Jesus serves as a legitimate approved high priest because he does indeed offer something. Notice that the writer says something to offer different than offering of gifts and sacrifices in the plural as he does for the high priest. Since Jesus' offering was presented back in uh, uh, chapter 7, verse 27, there is no need to further explain it at the moment, though we will get back to more of an explanation of his blood sacrifice uh, causing us to be redeemed in chapter 9, verse 12. But now I think this hits at the heart of his original audience, right here. They were questioning if they wanted to remain trusting Christ as their high priest, in the Old Testament promised Messiah, or return to a tangible tabernacle temple that they formerly knew. Now, in the temple, there was a physical place you could go and interact with a present priest, a person that they could see with their eyes, and they could lay their hands on a physical animal. The sacrifice that they would present to God, this sacrificial system involved one's senses to be completed, However, what they desired was not fully stripped away. We know Christ felt the physicality of that brutal sacrificial system. That we no longer now need to feel it and sense it and see it ourselves. Church, this is superior in Christ to the old system. The physical temple that they longed for, the purpose for which it stood, was a mere location for repetitive sacrifices and temporal atonement. Verse 4, it says now, if he, Christ, were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Jesus as a true high priest, Jesus was a true high priest, but he was not a true high priest of the law not of the tribe of Levi, not of the line of Aaron, only Aaronic priests were able to serve in these earthly temples. Christ was a greater temple, church. For Christ, the earthly temple, was just a model of the true thing. And hear this, he, Christ, alone, is the only one worthy to minister in the true temple. In verse five, man, whew. Man, I love this verse. Let's read it together, because this is where it all rounds out, church. They, the Levitical priests, they serve a temple. uh, They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, the tabernacle, he was instructed by God, saying, See, that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. This is huge. Please don't miss it. What is being said here is this. Jesus's ministry as a high priest was greater than those of the Old Testament because ultimately, their temple and tabernacles were just merely shadows of the real one. Shadows of the very sanctuary that Jesus Christ is currently ministering to, for us and to us in right now. This quote here is taken from Exodus chapter 25. Please turn there. Um, I want to look at this text a little more in detail to kind of set this up even more strongly. As we read, uh, the be- as we read at the beginning of the chapter right before the sermon took place, that's, um, let's turn here and continue to consider um, what is really going on here in, the, in the, the Moses being in the presence of God. If you turn there, uh, Exodus 25, I want to just give a quick summary of what this chapter is all about. So in the beginning, the Lord is speaking to Moses. I want to, uh, I want to specifically look at verse 9 and 40. So in the beginning, Moses is up on Mount Sinai. Now he's talking to God. God is giving him instruction on, on how to, to build this tabernacle. He says, this is the stuff you need to make it. And then he says in verse 9, Do this exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of the furniture, and by this pattern you shall make it. Well, make what? Well, I've already talked about what's inside the tabernacle. He goes through and says, this is how I want you to make the ark. This is how I want you to make the mercy seat. This is how I want you to make the table and the dishes and the lampstand. All of these things that we see inside the tabernacle that we covered. And in verse 40, look at verse 40. It says, and see that you make them, these things, after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. And this is it. This is the Verse 40 is the one that, that our writer is quoting here. Make them, all of these things, movable for the tabernacle, which will eventually be replaced by the temple, after the pattern for them, which is shown you. You can turn back to Hebrews 8 as I, as I explain this. But what Hebrews is picking up on in this verse would have served Israel so well for them to understand. Moses on Mount Sinai is not merely told how to construct the tabernacle. He's not saying, this is, listen, I'm going to tell you how to do it. That's not what's going on here. Instead, what God is doing is he's showing him what the tabernacle looks like. He's giving him insight into a physical replica model. That word pattern there, Tebni, right, literally means something that is representation of something else. It's literally a physical vision model that he's seeing of the tabernacle. This is really important. So how did Moses get these plans? He was shown it. God allowed Moses to see the true tent, the one in heaven. That was, then go and build a model on earth. This means that the throne room, the holies of holies in heaven, predates the tent constructed in the wilderness, Christ's sanctuary is greater than their sanctuary because it's eternal. It's not a shadow. It's not a copy. That is why the author uses these words, copy and shadow in verse 5, of the true tent in verse 2. A few weeks ago, I was in California for a wedding, and um, it was beautiful. We were in the mountains and the couple that was getting married were really outdoorsy people and they love to climb on, on rocks and stuff. And, um, which is cool. And we, uh, so we went to this world famous, uh, climbing spot called the buttermilks. Um, so the day of the, of the wedding, we, Lori and I were in the wedding. So, you know, we, we wake up, we get dressed and we're going to go take, uh, pictures of, uh, the wedding party. And, uh, this is great because these four by four off-road trucks pull up and they're like, okay, wedding party, get in the trucks. We're going to go take pictures. And I'm like, "Yeah, <laughs> sweet. I don't, I'm wearing a white shirt. I think I may have been wearing this exact one. And I'm like, it's about to get dirty, but it's going to be fun. So we get in the literally get all pack into these trucks, not even enough room for seatbelts. It was crazy. And we start driving towards the mountains, right? Off-roading it was crazy, and then we started literally driving up the side, off-roading up the side of this mountain, and the drivers were skilled. So I only half felt like I may die. And we get to the top of the mountain, and we all get out, and the cameraman's there. He's a radical, gnarly mountain climber photographer. So he's, like, roped in and everything. I'm like, this is weird, <laughs> like, <laughs> but this is cool. And uh, so we get to the top of the mountain, and there's a steep cliff, and what they wanted to do was take um, um, a picture of their first sight. I forget the word of it. Uh, first look. Thank you. Uh, first look, which means it's the first time the groom sees his bride. Really neat concept, right? So we're already on top of this mountain. And then he's like, we're going to do it up there. And I'm like, yeah, you're going to go do it up there. Because this was like literally like a really steep cliff. And they wanted to to do this first look at the top of this cliff. So... So he gets out, he goes to the top, and he's, he's facing the opposite way of us. We're all by the 4 by 4 trucks. Then the bride gets out, and, man, she's, she looks beautiful, and her hair's done, and her makeup's done. She has a beautiful gown on, and she throws on her climbing shoes. <laughs> I'm not joking. And uh, she just, like, scales the side of this mountain and gets up to the top. And, um, and there's this wonderful scene, right, where he's standing there waiting. And, uh, and it's beautiful, and I just imagine his heart, right, is pounding. He's excited, right? And as he's standing there, he notices a shadow come behind him. And from the shadow, he knows, he knows what it is. It's, it's his bride, right? He can see that her hair is different than normal, that she's wearing a poofy bottom something, so it must be a gown, right? Like she looks different, but he knows it's her. He knows enough of her to know this, is, this, this belongs to her. And in, in all of that excitement, he's all the time that they've been waiting, and it all comes to this. So he does what any husband would do in that moment. He drops to his knees and tries to hug the shadow. Now, I know that sounds really foolish for me to say, because clearly that's not what he did. But there's, there's something there about this, Right? clinging to to the shadow instead of the thing that the shadow belongs to? It's not what he did. He turned around with all the emotion and the pressure behind his eyes was welling and he embraces his wife. Give me my wife. Why would I just want the mere shadow? I love the shadow. The shadow is great. Like I want to keep that part too, but give me my wife. And they hug and they take pictures of it. And for any of you that were concerned like me, they did climb down safely afterwards. But, The foolishness of desiring the shadow is what the author is pointing out here. That's what he's trying to say. He is, in a sense, saying, you desire the earthly physical temple and the former sacrifices, but they're just the shadow of the real thing. In fact, if you were to just lay out the Old Testament system and you were to look at the shadow of, of the tabernacle and the law and, and the sacrificial system and the temple and the priesthood and, and the, in the throne room and the, the line of David, all of this would just be a shadow that you could trace back to the feet of Jesus. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, and my song. Yet in human weakness, isn't it so typical for us to take a great thing, such as the temple, and make it into a God thing, a lower G God thing? Or let me say it in other words, isn't it so human of of us to take something that should lead us into deeper worship of God and make it the object of our worship? This is what the temple became for many Old Testament Jews and apparently some Hellenistic Jewish Christians. It became a source of hope for them instead of just merely a place for them to worship their true hope. That's why when Jesus visited the temple in his earthly ministry and he sees what's going on inside of it, he has no issue with turning tables over, creating whips, and rushing everyone out. They say in John chapter 2, by what authority do you do this? He responds in verse 19. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said it took 46 years to build this temple. You will raise it up in three days? In verse 21, John chapter 2, he says, it says he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this, And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Theirs was a weak assurance. Their temples were shakable, vulnerable, temporal. Their priesthood was weak. Then Christ came and did everything that he said he would do. He offered himself as a crucified sacrifice. He died. And in that moment, the curtain in the Holy of Holies was torn, exposing the presence of God to any who could see. And then he was buried. After three days, his body was resurrected by the power of God. His once and for all sacrifice was accepted by God. Then he ascended into heaven, our high priest, who sits at the right hand of the throne in the true tent, the Holy of Holies. This is our God. So here our, our author puts forward this bold question in his text. Who do you put your hope in as a representative high priest before the presence of God? Church, if you're like me, and you face any sort of spiritual struggle in your lives, you feel persecution ever, you feel the weariness of your Christian pilgrimage, then what you tend to do, like myself, is to look inward and outward instead of upward. When our eyes are not fixed on our high priest who's serving us in heaven, we begin to sink just like Peter on the Sea of Galilee. What we need to do is fix our eyes on the ministry of our high priest and the sacrifice of our high priest to sustain us before the presence of God. We cannot enter the holy place apart from the approval of the one at the gate. Church, don't you want to be allowed into the holy of holies? Don't you want to be in the presence of your creator? Don't you want to enter the veil of the Holy of Holies with full confidence and assurance that when I step over that threshold, I won't drop dead immediately in the presence of a thrice holy God? Do you feel that way? Is that what you desire? Instead, I don't want to drop dead. I want to, I want to have that, that assurance when I step into the Holy of Holies with the confidence of Christ, that I will be welcomed in as a child of God. Now hear this truth with me, Christian brothers and sisters. If you are trusting in Christ as your true Savior, as your heavenly priest king, and he alone, then you too are already seated with Christ before the throne of God. As we turn, I just want to read from Ephesians chapter 2. So please turn there. If the idea of entering the holies of holies in the presence of God excites you, please listen to these words. Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 9. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse 6 and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Amen. So I ask you again, who do you put your hope in as your representative in the presence of God? May it be Jesus, and Jesus alone, church, when you doubt God's presence in your life, when you doubt that he is For you or you cry out in prayer and it seems like your prayers are just going into the air. Trust in Jesus alone. He will sustain you in the presence of God. When you struggle with the same sin over and over again, feeling weak and pathetic and guilt has overpowered you and you cower from the presence of God. Trust in Jesus alone. He will sustain you before the presence of God when you lack boldness in this world to stand up for Christ or to stand up for the truth that we have in his word, and that shame reminds you that you're unworthy of the presence of God, trust in Jesus alone. He will sustain you before the presence of our God. Let's pray. God in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word because it reveals who you are and what you have freely offered to us in Christ. We are a weak people. We are easily wooed by created things instead of being swept off our feet by you, our creator. So forgive us in Christ for our sin and remove our shame. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, not lesser things. Help us by the power of your Holy Spirit, whom you have sent to help us in our weakness, to trust in Jesus alone for our spiritual sustenance. Help us to be bold, knowing that we have free entrance into the holy of holies because of the torn flesh of Jesus, our atoning sacrifice. He has opened the veil to your holy sanctuary. And it's in Jesus' name alone that we trust, and in Jesus' name alone that we pray. Amen.